And support for Redwood Community Radio comes from the Redwood Coast Energy Authority, which wants the community to know there are a variety of resources to help customers pay their bills, find the right rate plan, and manage their energy use during the current crisis. Visit redwoodenergy.org for complete details or call 707-269-1700 for more information. And HerbalMed RX creates organic herbal products including bath and body oils, salves, deodorants, herbal teas, CBD products, essential oil blends, and more. Visit www.herbalmedrx.com to see all products and events. You can reach Sue Lukasha at HerbalMedRx by phone at 209-296-2120. KMD Gabble 91.1 FM. This is Ask Your Herb Doctor. My name's Andrew Murray. My name's Sarah Johannesson Murray. Uh, for those of you who perhaps have never listened to the shows, they run the third Friday of every month from 7 to 8 p.m. And callers are invited to call in with any questions about the subject from 7.30 until the end of the show at 8 o'clock. Uh, our guest speaker, Dr. Raymond Pete, will be joining with us. And uh, the evening's topic here will be the continuation of the ongoing COVID um, infection rates across the states and across the world and what it means to people entering this new phase of the lockdown for the winter. Um, Dr. P, are you with us? Uh, Yes. Thank you for joining. Um, Just so people can get a uh, a feel for you and uh, for your background, would you just uh, cover your academic and professional background for them? Um, uh, first, for several years, I worked in uh, arts, literature, linguistics, and then I went to graduate school in biology from 1968 to 72 for a PhD specializing in reproductive metabolism and aging. Okay, and you've been a, a fairly prolific uh, author. Uh, you do a monthly newsletter, and you've published many articles on your website. And um, I think I'm safe to say that your published works and your newsletters are fully referenced, and you're very science-based in your approach to understanding um, both disease and the mechanism by which things are ascertained. Um, so the ongoing uh, discussion that we're having with um, what we're being told uh, in terms of the facts surrounding uh, this coronavirus uh, pandemic, uh, nobody's spared. It seems to be a, a worldwide thing with even uh, China coming out with uh, recent outbreaks for which they're imposing their quote-unquote draconian measures to control the spread. Um, I wanted to carry on from where we'd left off last month. Um, I know that the main reason Uh, for highlighting this particular infection as being 
uh, an interest worldwide uh, is because there have been deaths associated with it, and um, those numbers certainly have been conflated in some cases and have been skewed in other cases. Uh, and the main reason for the deaths have been um, what they are calling a sudden acute respiratory syndrome. So they call this virus uh, SARS-CoV-2. Um, and it's that <clears throat> same mechanism uh, for inflammation and the um, watery secretions that are produced in the lungs that basically fill the lung tissue, the spaces, um, preventing oxygen diffusing in and out and CO2 diffusing in and out of the spaces that would normally be voids. Um, and it is some of the rationale for last month's discussion, uh, looking at uh, tr treatment strategies. Um, I know we've covered quite a few uh, strategies that can be used uh, if people do unfortunately get infected. Uh, expectorants are certainly one of those physical um, type strategies that have beneficial effects in terms of uh, increasing the removal of uh, waste from the lungs in terms of the sputum uh, and dead cells and inflammatory byproducts. I know you'd mentioned uh, last month uh, a relatively old chemical called uh, bromhexine and wanted to bring out the fact that the, the airways inflammation and the hypersecretion of mucus as well as this impaired uh, mucociliary um, effect all join together in a kind of catastrophic uh, kind of event uh, called the acute respiratory distress syndrome. And that is where uh, we have between that and the mechanical ventilator uh, disgrace that's happened uh, with people being put on ventilators and brought out by Carl Cameron, Siddell and others as being tantamount, tantamount uh, to murdering people because it's completely the wrong thing. But in the early days, they didn't know much about it. Uh, but now we know a lot more about it, and certainly, uh, as we'll see again when we go over these numbers, uh, the death rate from this particular coronavirus are really not very remarkable. Um, so looking at the um, expectorants that we've mentioned last month, uh, I wanted to just mention again that licorice, in terms of licorice's uh, active constituents, do definitely show both expectorant and antiviral activity, uh, something not to put down too lightly because it's a very popular uh, herb used in many different ways for treating different conditions and that its expectorant activity does also come with an antiviral uh, activity. I know, I think you had mentioned azelastine last month and this was an antihistamine uh, and I know that you've mentioned that the antihistamines because of their anti-inflammatory um, activity are very well indicated for any particular infection that is respiratory in nature or indeed in just inflammatory in nature. And so uh, you've mentioned um, azelastine and it's also had an effect on inhibiting uh, the SARS-CoV-2 infection in trials. Uh, I've mentioned things like uh, colt's foot syrup and even onion slices made into a syrup uh, as being useful. And um, then I just wanted to mentioned the fact about frankincense. I think that's where we got to last month. Uh, I know you're very uh, science-based and that you do have uh, the support for the evidence of herbs in instances where the pharmacology of it's known uh, and that kind of gives you uh, more to go on in terms of supporting any particular product. 
uh, whether it's a medicine or an herb or a natural product. Um, it's actually, when you look at the pharmacology of it, you can see uh, things that work uh, intrinsically in a physiological way to support the activity. And I know that um, a lot of the papers that have been written on frankincense uh, talk about boswellic acid. Uh, this is a particular uh, substance within frankincense um, that's known as an anti-inflammatory, uh, and it blocks the enzyme uh, 5 lipoxygenase <clears throat> And it also promotes the formation of uh, leukotrienes, uh, and this um, leads to the inhibition of an enzyme that is responsible for inflammation. And uh, put simply, uh, the frankincense itself changes the inflammatory enzyme into an anti-inflammatory enzyme, so that explains some of its activity. Uh, just looking at the death rate, again, at this point in time, I think the uh, worldometer, which is kind of, I think, uh, the John Hopkins people are fairly well um, advertised as the main uh, distributors of this uh, information, 76 million confirmed cases and 1.68 million deaths worldwide. So um, the 1918 comparable uh, pandemic, the last major worldwide uh, pandemic that had uh, numbers of deaths that were fairly staggering, uh, came out with a death rate of between 50, I think, and 60 or 70 million. The numbers were right around that. Um, so 1.68 million people is a really very small number. I'm not saying it's um, insignificant. I'm not downplaying it is very sad for the people that have lost their lives. Uh, but in terms of uh, the measures that have been taken, and this will play out in some of the questions I want to ask you later about the genomic changes of this virus and how um, that's being uh, interpreted. 1.68 million people for um, a pandemic that spread worldwide, which I think in the early days uh, seemed to have much higher numbers of death associated with, this, with it, and the numbers definitely have been played around with. I think that's probably the best way to say it, that um, when you read the facts and you look at the information, what you're seeing really needs to be looked at a lot deeper because it's very misleading. Um, I wanted to <laughs> bring out a little, a little later on in my questioning uh, that I read some articles uh, about young people, and I think even in the beginning of this um, pandemic, they had said that really young people weren't really that affected by it. Um, and then that's, that's changed to the young people being the super spreaders and passing it to the older age group. But um, I then found another article from the CDC actually supporting that the initial uh, finding that young people were really not very, um, yeah, not very affected by it and were a very small portion of the population. Um, so in terms of the people that are dying, um, in terms of the numbers, of worldwide cases in terms of the spread of this. Um, your, what is your position still on this? Um, I think it was um, late February or early March. Someone asked me what I thought was going on. And at that time I said that from all of the information about the virus infection that I could find, basically nothing is happening. And Every month since then, uh, someone has asked me a similar question, and uh, I uh, haven't been able to find any government announcement based on fact that convinces me that anything has happened, uh, that, that there has 
naturally there have every winter there's a pandemic according to the world health organization's own definition that it's a disease that makes people very sick and kills some of them that spreads across national boundaries affecting large numbers of people that happens every year with influenza and cold and various variations on the coronavirus, but they've basically changed the understanding of pandemic, they've changed the definition of how to tell what a person died of, they have instructed people if they find a trace of the virus in or on the person using a test such as the PCR identifying nucleic acids, they put the deaths down as caused by COVID. No matter what common sense says, if they were very sick with cancer or heart disease or other lung disease, still the death got recorded as from coronavirus simply by by order of, of the government. Uh, and so if you look at the actual uh, annual uh, death rate from uh, lung in- infections, uh, basically nothing has happened. Uh, and uh, the only change in the annual seasonal pandemic uh, is that it's now called COVID and diagnosed in very different ways from the way all diseases and deaths have been diagnosed previously, historically. And so if you look at... What was that? Jeffrey, if, you look at, if you look at the overall, ex, or overall mortality and excess mortality in the United States from January 2020 till now, are you saying that it has not changed in comparison to previous years? Um, yeah, when you look at the the annual curve going back uh, as long as we have data, several decades. Um, the, the peculiar thing, and Denny Rancourt has uh, gone into detail on the chart of that particular month. Uh, the second week of April of this year shows a phenomenon that just never happens statistically. Uh, that week, the incidence of influenza fell off a cliff, a, a vertical decrease. The very week that there was the vertical increase, spike in, in COVID. Uh, for that death curve to basically be a normal-looking curve if you don't look at the names. Suddenly, the the name of what they died of changed from influenza to COVID. And people have pointed out that similar things happened in the past when the influenza, when the polio virus came on the market. The number of people being paralyzed 
from something uh, every year it didn't change noticeably. But the diagnosis of polio suddenly stopped as soon as the vaccine became available. Uh, and they started being polarized, uh, paralyzed by uh, other things, uh, giving a new name, new varieties of paralysis uh, with similar symptoms uh, appeared. Uh, and uh, that's really an advertising principle, change the name to make your product look, look really good. Uh, and the, uh, you, you would expect uh, people who had been working in respiratory physiology for years and years in hospitals to really uh, understand uh, what influenza does to patients. And despite the fact that the, uh, some years the CDC had reported that tens of thousands of people were uh, sick with and, and dying from uh, uh, influenza lung infections, but when they actually gave tests to look for the virus, it went down to some years of a few dozen people actually had confirmed influenza. So basically for a long time they've been saying that this annual increase in mortality in the dark, cold part of the year in the northern hemisphere, same in the southern hemisphere, they've been calling this influenza, but when they actually tested only a small percentage was actually caused by influenza virus, another small percentage every year that they tested by coronaviruses, another small percentage by bacteria, and some by a syncytial respiratory virus. But half of the cases tested, they couldn't find any microorganism that would cause the pneumonia. So the, the, the whole picture and context of what people have been dying of for decades has not been based on science. It's just noise and advertising for policies they, they want to institute. And, and you would think that the doctors, despite the government uh, invention of influenza cases that weren't there, you would suspect that they had tried to understand what actually happens to the patient in the influenza infection. And if you look at the, the literature published right up to last year, but going back many years, what are the symptoms of influenza besides pneumonia? There are lots of, of symptoms. But these same experts who supposedly are experts in influenza are saying this new COVID virus is unique and horrible. It causes clotting disorders and strokes even in children and lung inflammation that leads to chronic permanent fibrosis of the lungs and neurological infections that cause uh, lingering, lifelong uh, cognitive uh, problems. 
vascular damage. All of these things that they have been saying are unique and horrible about the COVID infection are classical known symptoms of influenza infection. The people are either horribly ignorant in their own profession or they're following someone's orders to mislead the public, to scare the public. So what are these people, if you say a certain percent, a very small percentage were coronavirus, very small percentage were influenza virus and the different things that they could actually test for. So what, why were those people dying? The other half, or you said 50% of the people that died of what they labeled as influenza, what did they actually die from? Is it like an influenza-like illness and they're not sure what it was? Or Yeah, yeah the pneumonia, they died with pneumonia, but in at least half the cases, they couldn't identify any pathogen. It was probably stress causing endotoxin to leak out of their intestine. That always happens, and most of the known uh, respiratory viruses, distemper uh, uh, in dogs, uh, and uh, the paralytic uh, diseases in polio, for example, uh, these viruses attack oh. the intestine. Uh, that, that's their main site, causing in, inflammation in the intestine, which causes uh, uh, the leakage out of the uh, uh, hollow part of the intestine into the blood vessels of the intestine, uh, getting it into the, the, the whole circulatory system, poisoning the system, causing inflammation of the brain, uh, uh, disturbance of the blood clotting system, uh, uh, swelling of, of the lungs, uh, 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 all of the inflammatory things, uh, uh, so-called cytokine storms. Uh, that's a classic of uh, not only influenza, but uh, the current thing, they've talked about it as, as a unique and horrible uh, feature of it. But uh, if you have, uh, if you're very old and weak or have some major stressful sickness, the stress itself causes your intestine to uh, become permeable, to become inflamed from the bacteria in it, uh, and to uh, leak the toxic endotoxin material uh, into the whole body, causing uh, finally systemic uh, sepsis, multiple organ failure, uh, and, and uh, uh, some, sometimes uh, 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 generalized intravascular coagulation, uh, which is not only a feature of old age stress, but of both COVID and influenza. Uh, they're making something appear to be a disease, which is a condition that is almost a basic universal end-of-life condition, no matter what's killing you. Interesting. Okay, you're listening to Ask Europe, Dr. KMUD Galbahal, 91.1 FM. Uh, we're joined by Dr. Raymond Peake to get his wisdom on the subject and the number of you in or out the area, 707 986 no, no, 
707-923-3911. From 7.30 till the end of the show at 8 o'clock, callers are invited to call in with any questions. Uh, So, Dr. Pete, again, what you're you're reaffirming here uh, goes hand-in-hand with some articles that I was looking at uh, earlier on uh, to form some of my questioning with you. And uh, that one particular article, actually I saw it in a couple of other places afterwards when I was looking back over it to see if it was actually true. Um, It was a CBS um, news article um, by Dr. Jeremy Faust. It was published in the um, Journal of the American Medical Association, so it's not as though it wasn't in a prestigious publication. But anyway, um, Dr. Faust uh, was saying that um, between March the 1st and July 31st, there were significantly higher deaths amongst the younger adult population from 25 to 44 years of age, uh, saying that the July total, uh, and in other months too prior to July, was exceeding the young person death rate at the height of the HIV epidemic in America, and saying that actually young people were at risk and young people really should pay attention, and it was a disease for young people too. and then, after I uh, looked at this a little bit further, I saw a CDC article, and I guess we need we need to look at the CDC as being a sort of uh, authoritative uh, mouthpiece for what happens. I think most people look at the CDC as um, somewhere to get their their facts and their science, and they have all the data. Well, the CDC's own data confirmed that young people face a negligible risk of dying from COVID. Uh, and that actually um, the, the numbers were very, very low. So kind of plays hand in hand with what we've said all along about this and many other subjects. You've really got to be careful where you get your information from. Um, and no doubt the public are very frightened about this. And fear, uh, obviously, is a big motivator, unfortunately, and people make bad decisions when it's based on fear. I wanted to say this in relation to an article that I also pulled up um, showing that and again, this is nonpartisan, it's just a fact, uh, showing that there is a 6.6% gain in Obamacare health insurance plans, and that this year, uh, 8.2 million more have been submitted just before the closing deadline of December the 15th, 2020, than in any of the preceding four years. So, obviously, that's a fairly significant statistic, showing that there is a certain proportion of people opting into an insurance they've never normally been part of and quite understandably because they've been motivated by the terrible prospects of what would happen if they were hospitalized you know or something uh, along those lines and again not to downplay it but just to say that the mouthpiece the mouthpiece of the news media output uh, is a targeted i won't say weapon because that kind of makes it sound like it's all one way but it's targeted at the audience um, so the deaths are regrettable. Fear is definitely a factor. The deaths are not that big. Young people have been shown not to be um, that affected by it. Um, but yet the increase in insurance is showing that that's not the case because it's a knee-jerk reaction. Um, so, Dr. P, in terms, of, uh, <laughs> in terms of where we think this is all going, uh, this is a big... Go ahead. In relation to those articles, uh, uh, that's an example of uh, how hard it is to find actual 
good information. Uh, people traditionally have trusted JAMA, New England Journal of Medicine, uh, and Lancet uh, as the outstanding uh, sources of true medical information. But uh, just uh, last spring, uh, when Trump had been uh, talking favorably about hydroxychloroquine, right. uh, both the New England Journal of Medicine and uh, the uh, Lancet published major research articles based on vast databases that no one had ever heard of before, showing that uh, hydroxychloroquine kills people, uh, definitely uh, uh, does uh, more harm than good, uh, based on thousands and thousands of, of cases. So it should have closed closed the matter, but then it turned out uh, that uh, just doing some phone calls was all it took to find out that that was totally fabricated imaginary data. The, the two greatest medical journals published frauds, and the editor of Lancet didn't apologize for it. He said it's not his business to tell whether something is fraudulent, it's just to publish it. Uh, the the uh, journals uh, have been revealing uh, who, who they really work for, not the doctors or the public or the patients, uh, strictly uh, the drug companies. Uh, and they were upset uh, that uh, Trump would, would mention a very cheap, uh, traditional old uh, drug that uh, definitely has some benefit. I, I don't think it's at all, by a long way, the, the best treatment. Uh, uh, for example, azithromycin was tested uh, in some studies along with it, and it was uh, hugely better than uh, hydroxychloroquine. Uh, but but the, the journals are uh, not, not the place to look now, especially if they take medical pharmaceutical advertising. Uh, they're basically bought by the, the drug companies, such as the recent Pfizer uh, announcement uh, of the, uh, the details, supposedly, about their vaccine. Well, the, uh, one of the people on the FDA committee who voted uh, to approve the use of the vaccine without the two-year safety test the standard was the editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine, which takes advertising money from Pfizer and published Pfizer's announcement, which actually was free of any actual useful information, and described it as a triumph. And uh, he, he's not a specialist in the area anyway. He chose not to have a competent expert uh, re review the information uh, on the vaccine, which would have revealed what a fraudulent publication uh, Pfizer put in their magazine. But, but he was the... Uh, gainer from, from the advertising, and, and so he put in a, a glowing recommendation editorial along with the article. Yeah. 
Again, it's caught the attention of the entire world, hasn't it, this entire pandemic? And I think probably never better time than you've got everybody's attention looking at the numbers, looking at the news reports, looking at the, um, you know, how well in the pipeline these new drugs are being uh, released and how it's going to save everybody. I think, again, people have to be a little bit um, cautious about this because, as you've said, as has been said repeatedly, amongst the publications that have given the numbers, we're still looking at a very small, quote-unquote, but terrible for those people that died. I can't overemphasize the fact that I'm not downplaying it. Um, but that the numbers of people that have died here actually are still less than previous years from influenza. And hadn't, I heard something about flu away, that the flu, the influenza reporting has disappeared. Uh, yeah, that's recognized by World Health Organization and the CDC. Uh, the, the CDC recently listed their, I think it's 54 jurisdictions, 50 states and the territories. Four states had low incidence of influenza. Uh, the remaining 50 or so, uh, 48 or 50, had minimal, when you look at the figures for minimal, nearly all of them are zero cases. Uh, and this is at the start of the uh, high incidence influenza season. And, and the same thing happened uh, with the latest flu season in the southern hemisphere. Worldwide influenza has essentially disappeared. So I can't, under, under, can't underestimate that. It's uh, headline-grabbing attention that has gripped worldwide attention, has gripped people, and unfortunately the fear surrounding it sometimes causes people to make rational, irrational decisions. And um, I would just caution people to be aware of where their information is coming from and to be aware that there are plenty of other alternatives. Um, we'll get into looking at the genomic change of this virus and how uh, new variants are being um, discovered and um, looked at in terms of the European infections that um, they're talking about as the surging infections. Um, but we do have a caller, so let's take this caller. Uh, caller, away from, and what's your question? Uh, from the East Coast, uh, a couple of questions for Dr. Pete. One, um, for older people, I think you mentioned that cholesterol typically drops and it's harder to convert it to vitamin D. And I was just wondering, this is a little bit messy, but if you were trying to increase your uh, saturated fat to PUFA ratio, if you put like cocoa butter or something that had a very small amount of PUFA on it all over your skin, you know, just as a hypothetical matter, obviously it's pretty greasy, but what would the impact of that be? Is that a you positive? Do, you do uh, absorb a moderate amount, maybe 5% or something. Uh, I, I read about the old traditional way the Greeks uh, uh, handled premature uh, babies that were too weak to nurse. Uh, the old woman said that we, we just oiled them with olive oil, rolled them in a blanket, and put them behind the stove. Right. So you're saying that, that generally speaking, that could be a positive. Uh, yeah, you couldn't really uh, absorb a, a meaningful amount of saturated fat through your skin. You, you say you can or cannot? You you can, yes. You can. So you're saying so that it would be a positive. Okay, uh, so the other thing I was, um, <clears throat> wanted to 
always puzzled with is this notion of how you detect whether one is, you know, hypothyroid. And the book that I find even, the, the Broda Barnes book is the basic one, Unsuspected Illness is Good, but the one about correlating to heart attacks is even more incredible, actually. Um, and he goes through three different ways you actually can sort of correlate or hypothesize that someone has low thyroid. One is a low voltage on an EKG. Another one is um, checking the cholesterol. If your cholesterol is high, then <clears throat> clearly, and I've actually had this, your thyroid's not functioning properly. So that's another one. But the third one seemed interesting, and I don't think you've ever mentioned it as far as I... And that's if young people, he indicated, um, who had an abnormal accumulation of mucopolysaccharides on their skin typically had a high correlation with low thyroid function. So... Is there not possible? Is that true in your opinion? That's what he states sort of anecdotally. But is that something that could be checked in lieu of sort of blood tests or, you know, the less than perfect temperature check? To determine hypothyroidism or, or what? Yes. Uh, yeah, there, there are lots of, of physical tests to estimate the, the quality of the skin, the amount of water and, and jelly in it, and so on. Uh, but the the one that I was referring to, I guess, is the abnormal accumulation of mucopolysaccharides in the skin. Is that something? Uh, uh, yeah, they, they'll go away very quickly, though, when you get the right amount of thyroid and get your body temperature and metabolic rate up. Uh, they, they right, but what I, I'm, looking at not as, I'm looking at more of as a diagnostic tool. Uh, what was that? In other words... You go get your blood tests, right? And then, you know, many people say that those are just just so hard to interpret and they're just, they're just too many variables. It's just too hard to interpret. Well, but if, if you have you something read that's discreet... Barnes, uh, books, uh, then you'll know uh, more about how to deal with doctors who are uh, focused uh, away from everything meaningful, such as metabolic rate uh, and re reflexes, nerve conduction time, uh, thought processes and so on, uh, and thought okay. only yeah. to so uh, can we wrap this one up? That, uh, TSH. Uh, TSH uh, produces uh, inflammation, and many of the symptoms that we uh, blame on low thyroid, it's a positive uh, action uh, of the TSH molecule itself uh, rather than just a, a negative action of, of lacking thyroid hormone. Uh, okay, so, thank you. Let uh, me just make uh, one point on the, on the coronavirus. Two points: the CDC all death mortality we, for 2018 is about 2.8 2. million, and for 2020 it's also 2.8 million. <clears throat> this this particular uh, virus is <clears throat> more of a military operation. You don't die of it. It's not alive, and you have viruses in your body. So so this is way bigger than the health aspects. The bigger risk is getting a test and getting a vaccine where your DNA can be changed forever, irre irreversibly. So you get your, I think you're focused on the wrong things. It's the vaccine and the test that should be avoided. Thanks for your time. Okay, I think we have another caller. So let's get this next caller. Caller, you're on the air. Where are you from? What's your question? Hi there. Uh, I'm from Northern California. And I just I remembered uh, that you said something, or uh, your guest, that... Um, there, um, there are far less deaths 
from the COVID vaccine than there are the influenza annually. And yet everything I have read is that it's between 24,000 and 62,000, you know, flu deaths annually. But we're way over that. So maybe off the air, I'll hang up, but maybe he could explain what he's talking about. I'm not even so, sure I understood your, your question and your, your numbers. I don't know if you're still on the air or not, or you... Okay, uh-huh. I'll stay here. I'm saying that according to the CDC and a couple of other uh, organizations, it's between two, 24,000 and 62,000 flu deaths, you know, every year, basically, for the last several years. Uh, uh, and there's 300 and some thousand already just in this country from that. And so how it's, can there be less... Yeah. Uh, I just don't understand how maybe I'm, maybe you've got a source that I need to look up. Yeah, the CDC yes. itself is posting the absence of influenza cases this year. But in previous years, several years back, someone pointed out that they were making fraudulent claims about the tens of thousands of people dying from influenza when they hadn't tested for it. And when they did test for it, the vast majority of hold those... On, hold on, I have to stop a second. Caller, please turn off your radio. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, we just did. Okay, thank you. Always turn off your radio and listen on the phone. Continue, Dr. Pete. Everyone can hear you now. Uh, uh, the, the vast majority of those that the uh, CDC had been putting down as influenza death, deaths, they admitted uh, were... were uh, only a very tiny fraction were actual demonstrable influenza virus infections. And so at that point, instead of saying influenza deaths, they call it ILI mortality, influenza-like illness, because most of the things that were called influenza were something absolutely not influenza, but this year uh, they have been been checking for influenza itself and find that uh, there's this worldwide scarcity of it. Well, I mean, the overall mortality, Dr. Pete, you said it has not really changed this year in comparison to 2019? Probably little. Dr. Pete? The the total mortality... uh, year after year, it always rises very steeply uh, from October to April, roughly, uh, with a smooth peak, uh, uh, peaking in the winter in the northern hemisphere, in the dark season in the southern hemisphere. Uh, And uh, it's happening this year, except they're calling it COVID, very similar curve to what last year was called influenza. Up until April 12, they renamed the the curve statistically. It suddenly changed about April 12. Influenza came to an abrupt end when in when COVID started, and influenza hasn't made a recovery since then. Uh, I'm going to have to um, hang up and get the answers because I can hardly hear you on the phone because there's so many lines or whatever. So it's not really working for me. But I will say 
that uh, also on WebMD, there's several different numbers, at, no matter where you look. But, um, you know, they're basically saying the flu-related causes in the U.S. is 8,000 to 20,000 annually. And, um, you know, that was as of August 2020 that they uh, put that in there. So, um, anyway, I'm going to listen off the air because I can't really hear you on the phone. Thank you so much. You, you may well be able to listen to the archive and listen to what Dr. Pete was saying also, but uh, let me just put it out there for the moment that you're listening to us here at Dr. K. McGarbagall 91.1 FM from now until the end of the show at 8 o'clock. You're invited to call in with questions, either related or unrelated to this month's subject. Uh, the number is 707-923-3911. Dr. Pete, did you retain that thought that you had during answering that question? Uh, um, uh, yeah, the... the uh what she quoted from uh, the internet uh, um, made whatever it was uh, saying that they are now calling them influenza-related diseases. The idea of you can relate anything to anything, but the CDC itself changed the terminology in a very objective way that no one objects to calling it Instead of influenza deaths, as they had, they suddenly changed it to influenza-like illness, which is fine. You can say that the fever and the coughing and all of the inflammatory symptoms of influenza happen, even though it happens that the particular influenza virus might not be there. So the naming is very important. But regardless of whether it's influenza-like illness, COVID-19, other coronaviruses, respiratory syncytial viruses, whatever it is that causes an influenza-like illness or pneumonia, high fever, cough, regardless of all of that, if there was a new... I'm trying to repeat what you're saying, Dr. Pete, and see if I've got it right here. If there was a new novel virus that was killing so many more people than previous years, wouldn't we have an overall mortality massive increase? It, it would have added to the influenza mortality, most likely. Uh, but this phenomenon is very weird. It's as if the COVID killed influenza. The very week it spiked, uh, influenza cases collapsed. Uh, and that has never been known uh, where one disease will start killing people at the same rate another one was while uh, curing that disease. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's move on uh, to some of the other... And we um, have another caller, too. Okay, good. Well, let's go ahead and take these callers in first. Caller, you're on the air. Where are you from? What's your question? Hi, I'm from the East Coast. Um, and I had a question about uh, the best way to receive sunlight. Um, so uh, I think you've said before, Dr. Pete, that um, UV radiation is good in small amounts but can be harmful in larger amounts, and then the visible light wavelengths are good in any amount when they're coming from the sun, and that glass also filters out UV radiation, and depending on the type of glass, you can filter out the vast majority of the UV radiation. So does it make sense to spend about like maybe half an hour or so outside direct sunlight to get your 
UV radiation for vitamin D and then spend as much time outside of that during the daytime when there's sunlight uh, behind a pane of glass as much as possible. Um, and as a, as a follow-up, is there any benefit to um, stained glass windows other than them just looking nice? I think basically they're mentally stimulating, very, very um, valuable to have in the environment, colorful, complex things in your visual field are very valuable biologically. And if you get just a little too much ultraviolet radiation, the uh, harm starts resembling the damage done by ionizing radiation. It, it creates systemic inflammation. Uh, if you uh, horribly uh, sunburn your your arm, for example, your, your whole body uh, will feel the damage. Uh, very similar to uh, if you X-ray an animal's foot, the whole organism goes into a, a particular. Uh, uh, suffocating or estrogen-like uh, condition, uh, so it's it's important not to uh, burn yourself with the sunlight. Uh, and uh, when you get uh, uh, the vitamin D uh, uh, building up, that is a very protective, anti-inflammatory thing. Uh, so even though you aren't uh, very tan, the vitamin D itself uh, protects from that spreading. Uh, inflammatory process. Uh, so if you take uh, enough vitamin D before you go into the sunlight, uh, uh, many people find that they uh, uh, tolerate the sunlight uh, with uh, much less tanning than normal, but uh, no burning at all. I see. As a really quick follow-up, um, is there anything to the intensity of your tan? So, for example, if you tan if you have light skin but then become very dark, does that mean something uh, about your vitamin D levels or anything else? Uh, I would guess that from my experience with people who uh, have, have become pretty immune to the sunlight just by getting their uh, vitamin D in their serum a little above average, uh, I guess is that uh, they are being light-skinned uh, they are experiencing a pretty intense inflammation that then turns on a, a very strong defensive tanning reaction. Um, you can uh, cause the tanning reaction just by injecting some toxic materials into the skin, so it's, it's definitely the injury that the skin is reacting to. I see. So, if you do have to tan a lot, does that mean that you are experiencing some sort of injury? And I guess tanning is better than burning, but not burning is better than tanning. There is undoubtedly some of that inflammation influencing other processes. Got it. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for your call. Um, engineer, is there another person on the line waiting? No, nope, it's all you. Okay. So uh, if anybody is listening and they want to make a quick call before 8 o'clock, the number is 707-923-3911. Uh, Dr. Pete, if we get a chance, um, 
I know you're not particularly um, you're not particularly keen on this this next uh, drug that I'm going to mention, but I um, wanted to just put it out there um, that this compound uh, ivermectin uh, has had some pretty favourable um, studies done on it. And um, just to put it out there, people want to take a look at the published research and the science. Uh, this wormer uh, is a uh, treatment for river blindness in parts of subtropical Africa, South America, and de- you know, generalized tropical areas where uh, tropical parasites are well-known and prevalent. Uh, river blindness is one of them. Uh, the other one that causes filariasis, which is a massive uh, lymphadenopathy from blocking the lymphatic vessels that uh, elephants put. Um, you see in Africa, parts of Africa, uh, as well as a, a quite a quite a range of other um, parasitic infections, mainly uh, ascaris and uh, nematodes, etc. It's there's definite treatment and used in the human population. Obviously, uh, it's also in the veterinary world as a treatment for parasitic infections of cattle and horses and uh, chickens, etc. Um, so ivermectin has, has got lots of science showing its activity against many viruses, and they, they quote West Nile virus, um, equine virus, chikungunya, HIV, um, HIV-1, uh, SARS-CoV-2. Uh, they also mention its benefit in Zika, uh, dengue, and yellow fever. They're talking about eradicating this virus, not just you know, kind of a treatment um, for making it better or, or decreasing the effects, but they're saying that um, this compound can actually eradicate 99.8 or something percent uh, of the viral uh, DNA. Uh, it has a very strong antiviral activity, and it's uh, used as a, a dewormer, probably through some d- different mechanisms. But they're saying it could be a novel repurposed drug, and I think there's uh, work uh, in the background here, and there's some of which is getting into the public uh, about this. But I know this may or may not be a deterrence uh, or this, <laughs> uh, a kind of uh, a smoke and mirrors game because obviously the vaccine is what everything's all being told the public that uh, it's going to be the cure. Um, what do you think about ivermectin? I know you've mentioned other drugs, obviously losartan, which we've covered extensively as an ACE, uh, ACE drug. The, the, the um, good thing it has in this favor is it's been used for uh, what, 35 years and uh, it... Uh, doesn't have a perfect safety record, but uh, the, the vaccine has absolutely no safety record. <laughs> so if you had well, a choice between ivermectin uh, preventive and taking the vaccine, I, I don't right. see how you would have, uh, considering your own safety, I don't see that there would be a choice. But if you're uh, unable to get all of the other things that are known to stop the the very process of the COVID uh, development of disease, starting with the spike protein, uh, all of our anti-inflammatory drugs from aspirin on, including even the glucocorticoids, despite their side effects, all of those, uh, we have so many of those everywhere. Uh, that has a drugstore, you you can get some of those things uh, which have a a, a known effect. But if if you don't have those, then naturally uh, ivermectin uh, is a good candidate. But uh, if you uh, think of it out of context, 
and think about what if 200 million people decided to get a bunch of it from their veterinarian store and take it every day preventively, then you get the chronic effects, which in some people are going to produce autoimmune joint problems, arthritis, and liver reactions. Chronic hepatitis can develop from it. So very, very promising stuff in context and taking into account that you might sometimes not be able to get all of the safer things to treat with, but it should be used for sort of an emergency situation rather than thinking of it as taking it protectively for a long time. Okay, good. Let me hold you there, Dr. Pete. I don't mean to cut you off, but I know the uh, credits, etc., need to roll. So let me thank you very much for joining us again for this last show of this year. I uh, wish you a happy Christmas, Dr. Pete. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Pete. Thank you for um, joining us. Thank you very much for your wisdom okay. and knowledge. Good night. Okay, so for those people uh, who've listened to the show, they run third Friday every month. Uh, our website, westernbotanicalmedicine.com, has all of the shows up until about July of this year, July or August. Uh, the last few are going to be put up here real soon. Um, my wife and I are both naturopathic doctors, and Dr. Peach joined us for the last 10 years doing these programs, and we've certainly learned a very different uh, approach to a lot of the things that we were taught. Dr. Pete wants to always be on the safe side of uh, anything, and that's quite right. So the Hippocratic Oath really does apply big time there. Uh, at first, do no harm. Okay, so for those of you who have listened, uh, appreciate your time. Thank you for your calls, and uh, we hope to be doing this next year, but um, we'll see what the uh, lockdown effects are like and what the COVID is doing in the states around the world, too. My name is Sarah Johannesson Murray. Thank you for joining our program. And my name is Andrew Murray. Good night Good and Merry night. Christmas. On Tuesday, December 22nd at 8.30 p.m., KEE-TV presents the documentary Harmony in the Eel River Basin. This film looks at how we can improve the watershed and open communication about land management to keep the ecosystem alive for future generations. Get the details and stream it at keet.org. And Bryceland Vineyards is helping sponsor Food for People and KMUD Radio during the holidays. 25% of the revenue of your Bryceland Vineyards purchase will be shared with KMUD and Food for People. In these times, we all need community, clarity, and nourishment. To contribute, email Rosie or Andrew at brycelandvineyards.com or call 707-923-2429 to place your contactless order. Wine can be picked up in Bryceland, Redway, or Eureka. Bryceland Vineyards is proud of its long-standing support of important local organizations. Think globally, drink locally. (music) 
And we are Redwood Community Radio, KMUD Garberville, KMUE Eureka, KLAI Laytonville. In just 30-odd seconds, we will have Shaka and Shyla stepping out on a wing and a prayer. 